When the Sabbath was passed by the 16th century English composer John Tavener. This wonderfully atmospheric work tells the story of how three women, including Mary Magdalene, arrive at Christ's tomb on Easter Sunday morning. And it really evokes the mystery and awe of what's about to happen, the discovery that Jesus has risen from the dead. Hello and welcome to this Easter edition of Things Unseen, the podcast for people of faith and those who are curious about the spiritual dimension of life, the realm that lies beyond the material world. I'm Bonnie Lander-Johnson. I'm a writer and a Cambridge academic with a love of stories, history and the natural world. I'm curious about the way that we live with nature and the history of how we've thought about nature as something more than merely material, something that is alive, even divine. And I'm Father Christopher Jamison, a Benedictine monk and writer, and currently serving as Abbot President of the English Benedictine Congregation. Now, there's an interesting fact that connects Bonnie and me. We were both born in Australia, but she was born to English parents. I was born to Australian parents. But as she likes to say, she speaks Australian and I speak English. But we both grew up reading the same English stories. (laughs) That's right. So... In this podcast, we're going to take a look at whether Easter still has any meaning in the 21st century beyond a small circle of church-going Christians. We're living in a society which is no longer very religious in the traditional sense. In the 2021 census, for the first time, more people claimed to be of no religion than those who claimed to be Christian. And I wonder if people with no religion still notice and observe the moment of Easter as it enters into our lives And are there ways of seeing Easter with fresh eyes, even for those of no faith? We're going to take some inspiration from the latest edition of the International Catholic News Weekly, The Tablet. But we'll also bring to the table what struck us personally about the run-up to Easter this year. So, Bonnie, you take a particular interest in nature and in plants. How does that fit in with your experience of Easter? Yeah, I'm really interested in the fact that Lent as a liturgical and spiritual season is mapped onto the agricultural season that has traditionally been known as the lean time or the hungry time in the agricultural calendar. Winter was um, actually a time of relative plenty because all of the harvest food was stored up to get through the dark months. Um, But then by the very end of winter and the beginning of spring, all that food had run out. So although there's fresh green shoots appearing in the field, so life is returning to the world, actually none of that new food is ready to eat yet and the winter store has run out. So we really are hungry even though we're watching life emerge. And that sense of waiting and watching while being hungry, that's the definition of Lent, really, isn't it? And so it made Lent easier in those days, presumably, because there was less to give up. Yes, sacrifice was thrust upon us by the necessities of, of our farming lives. And, of course, those of us who live in cities now have 
become slightly disconnected from that experience because we've become used to eating any food anytime we like, except this year when many of our supermarket shelves were empty at the time when they probably ought to have been spiritually empty. So we all started talking about eating turnips again and eating seasonally. But there was once, you know, a real spiritual dimension to eating seasonally because those patterns of how the world shrinks and diminishes and flourishes and dies back were part of our everyday life, but they came to us, they made sense to us also because of this mysterious cosmic narrative that was going on behind them. Now, I don't know how sensitive this um, microphone is, but my tummy just rumbled while you were talking about all that food. So I I, I think um, the physicality of this time of the year is reflected even in, in unexpected ways. The mere body has its spiritual dimension, yeah. But I, th- I do think also for all of the capacity, at least in this hemisphere, for Lent to be mapped onto the agricultural lean time, something then happens when we get to the end of Lent to the Passion, Crucifixion and Resurrection narrative. That's a very sombre, very grave, it's, it's one of our strangest and most sombre celebrations, but it happens right at the end of spring when the daffodils are the most buoyant and the most vibrant and the earth is really waking up. And I wonder whether there's something interesting in that contradiction between the liturgical story and the natural world, which is then occurs again at Christmas. At Christmas, we wait for God to be born as a little child. We we bring out all of the gold and the white and the trumpets and the candles for the Christmas liturgy, but all around us, the earth is quiet, it's sleeping, it's dark. But that makes sense. At Christmas, it makes sense because we're, we're waiting for the new life when we need it most, in the darkest moment. And then at Easter, of course, that contradiction makes sense because Christ had to die in order to be risen, just as we wait for the earth to come back when we need it most. And, and at the end of Lent, that's our question, isn't it? Will it come? Will everything be all right? Will he rise again or will we be left in the darkness? And I think that it's worth remembering that we're not pretending that Christ has died and that we don't know the next stage. It's important that even as we're celebrating the death where where we know the resurrection is coming. I think it's an interesting question to what extent Christ was aware of this himself. I personally believe that it's important that while he never lost hope in his father to save him, he had no idea what shape that would take, whereas we now do know something of that shape. And as you say, it reflects the natural world shape of dying and rising. And he may have had some sense of that. We don't know how it's going to play out in our lives, though, do we? That, so that is a similar experience. Exactly. We know liturgically that the moment will come, but every year at Easter there's something in our lives that's dying and something new that's coming, and we'll never know what it is exactly. Which is why I think it's important to recognise that Jesus himself did not know what shape that was going to take, but he never lost hope, and and we'll be saying a bit more about that later on. Yeah, I wonder too, if we think about the relationship between the liturgical and the agricultural, all of that actually makes sense in traditional medieval or early modern thought about how we understand the movement of time. And you know quite a bit about that, I think. Yes, I've been looking into 
this question of why is Easter a movable feast? You know, why does it move around so much? And how come different groups of people celebrate Easter at different times? Well, the key to all this is, of course, the lunar and solar calendars. And that ties up with what you're saying about the natural rhythms of, of the soil and the earth. Because Easter is connected to both the rhythm of the moon and the rhythm of the sun. So here's, in one sentence, how you calculate the date of Easter. It's the first Sunday after the full moon that occurs after the spring equinox. So that's part solar calendar. It's the equinox is a key date here. And that's round about the 20th or the 21st of March. We just had it on the 20th of March this year. And it's part lunar because it's the full moon that dictates the date, the first full moon after the equinox. So what is the equinox? The equinox is that time when the gap between sunrise and sunset is 12 hours, and then the gap between that sunset and the next sunrise is 12 hours. In other words, you have equi equal nox night, equal night, equal day. And that occurs twice in the year, once in March and once in September. And this is the spring equinox, and then after that, there is a full moon. And then the Sunday after that is Easter. Now, that, because we're calculating by both the solar and the lunar calendar, the net result is the solar calendar keeps it roughly at the same time of the year. But the moon cycle is different, and so it switches around after that. And as gospel suggests that Jesus ate the Passover with his disciples at the so-called Last Supper, the church aimed to connect Easter to Passover, but then the Sunday after Passover to emphasize the Sunday of resurrection, when Christ rose from the tomb after his crucifixion on Good Friday. And you think that's, you know, the end of it. It's not, because since the 16th century, Western churches have used the Gregorian calendar, which is more accurate than other calendars. But as they say, other calendars are available and the Jewish celebration of Passover occurs on the full moon after the equinox. Fine. So in that sense, it's in touch with the Christian calendar. But they're using a different calendar to calculate the equinox. And then similarly, to calculate Easter in some of the Eastern Orthodox churches, they also use a different calendar for their calculation of the equinox. So this year, for example, Orthodox Easter is one week later. Now, some people say, wouldn't we? I, I hope you've understood all that, by the way, Bonnie. <laughs> I've been following you very closely. Good, good. <laughs> uh, there'll be a test at the end. Wouldn't we be better off having a fixed date for Easter, which is something that the Church of England has proposed? Well, I, I'm not sure about that because I think, like you were saying, Bonnie, I like the idea of staying in touch with natural cycles. And by having this movable feast, we are actually acknowledging the cycle of the moon as opposed to just the cycle of the sun. And I think it's good to be connected to cycles that are natural. Pope Francis has a great statement, which is both intriguing and, I think, challenging. He says, time is greater than space. Time is greater than space. Space hardens people come on, we've got to get a move on. Let's organize ourselves more efficiently. But time propels us forward in hope. 
in a way that we can't fully control. I can control space. I can't control time, which is why he says time is greater than space. And I think the connection to the natural cycles that you were talking about, the astronomical cycles I was talking about, I think that's an example of keeping us connected to time. And the natural world is always propelling us forward in hope as opposed to our tendency, which is want to control and contain things. So let's keep the nice complication of Easter. Of course, we were both born in Australia and over down in the southern hemisphere of the country, they don't have the same seasons. So the question might actually be, do they need to calculate the seasons differently? Yeah, I Or are they happy to have Christmas in the summer heat? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Although I, um, my my cousins, I don't know about your connections there, my cousins tell me that Bondi Beach on Christmas Day is full of Brits that having barbecues just so they can take photos to send home on Christmas Day of being in the sunny Bondi Beach with, with a barbecue, but the Australians themselves wouldn't do that. No, they'll be inside with the chicken. They'll be inside <laughs> with, the, with the, yeah, exactly. A lot of them mimicking the English <laughs> Christmas with, with Christmas cards with snow all over them and that kind of thing. So I know from, from my family there that, that was very traditionally rooted in that. But I think now it's an interesting question with so many migrants to Australia. But you're right. I mean, celebrating all this in the Southern Hemisphere is a very, very different experience. It's a very Northern a northern Hemisphere-based way of, of staying in touch with the seasons. So I'm sure that somebody somewhere is thinking about whether we should have, you know, Christmas at a completely different time of the year in Australia and Easter as well. But I think somehow the universal church would find that rather difficult to handle. So I suppose one of the questions we've got at the end of this is, what about people who are not religious? How are they going to celebrate Easter? And the answer seems to be, I, I know my family, which was religiously celebrating Easter, but only on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we used to go horse racing and on the Monday after Easter Sunday, we used to go motor racing, which was one of my family's obsessions. And other people will be having special meals. There'll be endless uh, football matches, sports fixtures, chocolate eggs, of course, egg hunts in the garden and so on. So for most people, I think it's going to be a question of it's a better time to do what you enjoy. And with some sense that it's about spring, new life, eggs daffodils. And because of the holiday being together, yes, having you, a chance yeah, I mean, it's, to be it's off longer. work and yeah, therefore absolutely. get the, the family together. Yeah. But are there stories that you think, Bonnie, which somehow bring alive Easter in a way that could be accessible to absolutely anybody? There's one story that I like to tell my children, which is an old story from the Holy Land about the robin. And it's a story of the robin who is very expectant because the nest is full with eggs fit to burst. And like all parents, he's getting anxious and restless because the children are coming any moment. So he's flying around and gathering as many twigs and leaves and things that he can find for that last push to make the nest comfortable for all the small children when they come. And from the robin's point of view, Calvary is a three trees on a hill. And so the robin lands on the centre tree, which is Christ, crucified, and plucks a thorn out of the crown on Christ's head. And as he does so, some of the blood on the thorn seeps into his collar and gives him that wonderful red breast that he has forever after. 
And he flies back to the nest with a thorn and builds it into the nest and then goes to sleep. And the morning of the third day, the sun rises, and as the sun rises, all these little eggs break open and the chicks emerge. So the story of Calvary, the story of the Passion and Resurrection don't actually feature as part of the main narrative. They're told in the background as something that animates real day-to-day -day life, not just human life, actually, animal life, even the tiny life of nature, of birds and trees and plants, is animated by this fuller, bigger, stranger, more poetic story of the life of Christ. But it gets its meaning, nonetheless, from those submerged patterns. And I think that's one of the ways, as Catholics, that we understand the relationship between the spiritual and liturgical narratives and the world around us. Yeah, and it's to do with seeing the story of Christ as making explicit what is inherent in the world. I think that's what that does so beautifully, that the robin is unwittingly living out the passion in the robin's own life without realising it. And I think that beautifully captures that. Yeah. So maybe we could move on then to talk about how the rich spiritual meaning of Easter could be made more explicit to people in a way that people without faith could perhaps understand more fully, even if they don't accept completely what's going on. And I think one of the ways to do it is to link it, the story of Easter to certain easily identifiable human characteristics. So for me, the key to this is trust. I think that trust is probably one of the most vital parts of human life, which is so fragile. And we see so many examples of mistrust, perhaps now more than ever in a way, uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and if we recognize that trust and mistrust are these very, very fundamental parts of human life, then what we see going on at Easter is the life of Jesus being the life of a man who had great capacity to trust other people and God, but especially the capacity to trust God. So he was, if you like, uniquely just and good. And what he met was unique amounts of violence and opposition. Unique amounts is perhaps putting it too strongly, but his goodness was met with extraordinary evil. And he ends up on a cross, dying profoundly painfully. On the cross, he lets out a cry known as the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's a terrible thing to think this man whom Christians believe is the son of God is seeming to express complete despair. But what's significant is that is the first line of a psalm and the psalm concludes with the words, my soul shall live for him, my children serve him. They shall tell of the Lord to generations yet to come, declare his saving justice to peoples yet unborn. So the first line of the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the last line of the psalm, I will declare his saving justice to peoples yet unborn. So in other words, it is both a cry of dereliction and a cry of hope in one. And I think it's that 
despair and hope in one that is the key to understanding what's going on here. And in the tablet this week, there's an article about a, an artist called Graham Mortimer Evelyn, who has depicted the Stations of the Cross in quite remarkable ways. What's striking is Graham Mortimer Evelyn is not a Christian. He's a Buddhist. And yet he manages to capture the essence of the Stations of the Cross. And one of the most remarkable is the final one, which is the resurrection, in which he depicts a man and his young son about to be shot by the Nazis. And this is a true story, a terrible moment of despair, a cry of dereliction could go up from them as well. But the the father took the child by the hand and encouraged him to look up at the stars. And that seems to me, again, this extraordinary capacity to be both in despair and to have hope. And the artist has depicted that beautifully. So that moment, it seems to me, is a moment of individual significance, that it's an example we can learn from that Easter offers us. So it's more than just about the flowers blooming and hope coming back in spring. It's about the human experience of suffering and despair, which can somehow also contain within it an experience of hope. But even more profoundly, we use phrases like, you know, Jesus has saved us, or we talk about redemption. And that's because the core Christian belief that Jesus is the one from God to the man who is one with God in a unique way means that his living out of this moment of despair and hope in one has a cosmic effect. It is now available to all of us. It was available to us before, but now because of his presence and his continuing spirit, we can share in that spirit and have a renewed capacity to live moments of suffering with hope. And we think at the moment with things like the Ukrainian war, the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, all of that, we can amazingly, and we see it the whole time, even people who are not explicitly Christian are showing us how to live through suffering and despair with hope. And those who are Christian see in that a reflection of the continued effect of Christ's redeeming power to help people live through that. And that's what we mean by Easter as the moment of redemption. Does that strike you as having a resonance, do you think, beyond just Christian faith? Absolutely. And I would say that all people experience suffering, uh, whether they have faith or none, and that one of the key characteristics of great suffering, actually, is that there is something at the centre of it that we might call hope or we might even call love. Anyone who's been in a war zone, I've often heard it remarked that quite remarkable sense of community and of immediate help is experienced by those who are going through the horror with the person who's articulated their experience in this way. And and likewise, I mean, the story from Graham Mortimer Evelyn's Stations of the Cross, I think, would speak to any parent. The anxiety of the parent for the child's life and safety is something that you carry with you all the time, but it is always a combination of fear and and love. And if a child is ill, or indeed those who've lost children, there will always be in the middle of that suffering, a love for the people who've helped 
who've, who've looked after the child, who've carried your own pain during that time. So I think actually those two experiences always go hand in hand, whether we have faith or not. But as you say, the faith has helped us to make sense of the cosmic dimension of this very human experience. Yeah. yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of this Easter edition of Things Unseen with me, Father Christopher Jamison. And me, Bonnie Lander-Johnson. If you'd like to hear more Things Unseen, just visit the Things Unseen website, thingsunseen.co.uk, or find us via the usual podcast outlets. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And we'll leave you with a little more of that wonderful music that we began with by John Taverner. From Bonnie and from me, we wish you a very happy Easter. <laughs>